Maine's Political Pulse is made possible by listeners and by Lee Auto Malls, featuring all electric vehicles from Nissan and Toyota in stock now. Learn more at leeauto.com electric. Welcome to Maine's Political Pulse. I'm Steve Missler, Maine Public's chief political correspondent, alongside State House reporter Kevin Miller. Well, Kevin, it's been a relatively sleepy beginning to August, although there was a big development in the ongoing saga of former President Donald Trump's legal jeopardy. The former president and current frontrunner for the Republican nomination next year was indicted by a federal grand jury that effectively holds him criminally responsible for the January 6th riots at the U.S. Capitol two years ago. Now, Kevin, all four members of Maine's congressional delegation directly blamed Trump for what happened on January 6th, and all four supported impeaching him for it. But all but one offered a pretty muted response to his indictment this week. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so First District uh, Representative Shelley Pingree, who is Maine's most liberal and definitely most progressive member of Congress, she didn't hold back. She said this week's events were not only an indictment of Trump himself, but also of the entire Republican Party. And then, as she put it, you know, at long last, our nation sees the possibility of accountability for Donald Trump. Uh, but the other members were pretty muted, as you as you said. Our other House member, Democrat Jared Golden, who represents the more conservative second district, uh, he basically repeated his earlier statement that everyone is innocent until proven guilty and that this process should be allowed to play out, as he said, uh, quote, without bias or political interference. Republican Senator Susan Collins, she pretty much said the same thing, echoing what Golden said. And then we didn't hear anything from independent Senator Angus King. You know, it's tough to say. I don't know whether this muted response is more evidence of Trump fatigue. I mean, this is the third indictment of the former president. And in some ways, it seemed like the national response outside of political circles was kind of meh as well. Yeah, I mean, I kind of wonder if part of this restrained response might be attributable to the fact that Trump still has an iron grip on a significant slice of the GOP primary electorate. Um, and, and part of it may be a sincere belief that the legal process should play out. But we did learn this week that Senator Collins won't be supporting Trump if he wins the GOP nomination. That appears to be a return to her position in 2016 when she said she wouldn't support him, but a departure from 2020 when she was running for re-election and refused to say if she'd vote for him. Kevin, tell us what you know. Yeah, so I guess the way I'd characterize it is that she's making her position clearer this election than she did in 2020. A spokeswoman for Collins, uh, she told the Portland Press-Herald this week that uh, Senator Collins won't be supporting Trump during the Republican primary and wouldn't vote for him even if he was the nominee against President Biden next year. This isn't really, it's not necessarily a new position. She had said back in April that Trump wasn't her choice for the GOP nomination and that, as she's put it, there were, quote, many outstanding candidates to choose from. Uh, she actually named, uh, during that interview with WABI, she named a few of those, uh, former governors uh, Nikki Haley of South Carolina and Asa Hutchinson of Arkansas and Chris Christie of New Jersey, as well as South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. She hasn't come out and endorsed anyone yet. But again, this is different from three or four years ago. Uh, when, as you mentioned, she was in her own tough re-election fight and she wouldn't publicly comment on Trump's re-election bid. Yeah, that's interesting, too, that that the candidates that she named back in April that she is supportive of have actually taken different views to his indictment, too. I think uh, Senator Tim Scott 
you know, talked about wep- the weaponization of the Department of Justice, whereas Chris Christie's been holding Trump accountable or, and blaming him for January 6th all along. In fact, he's sort of separated himself uh, from the GOP primary field by doing that. Um, I think a lot of the other candidates are walking a different line, maybe a little bit closer to what uh, Senator Scott is doing. Right. All right. Let's pivot back to state politics to focus on the lead item in our Pulse newsletter this week. It centers on a single, but I think significant donation from a nonprofit connected to legal activist Leonard Leo to a a Maine-based political action committee. Now, Leo's profile has risen nationally because he is largely credited and criticized for shaping the current rightward tilt of the U.S. Supreme Court, in part via a complex network of nonprofits that have spent heavily supporting the nominations of justices like Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch. But Leo has recently made it clear that he intends to focus on beating back what he views as liberal dominance in society and culture, and also to challenge them in state-level politics. And I wonder if this $50,000 donation to a main uh, main pack called For Our Future is part of that effort here in Maine. That certainly seems plausible. Um, I know you had some exchanges, Steve, with uh, Alex Titcomb, who runs the For Our Future PAC, and Alex didn't specifically comment on the PAC's relationship with this national group or with Mr. Leo, and uh, Leo himself didn't respond to our questions either, but he's made it pretty clear in recent interviews that he sees his role as basically helping the conservative right match the huge money spending on the left from people like George Soros and others. And I think what makes this donation so intriguing is that Leonard Leo now lives here in Maine, uh, at least for much of the year. His family has a house in Northeast Harbor on Mount Desert Island, which has been the scene of many a protest ever since the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade because of his role in helping select those uh, conservative justices. And, you know, as we've seen here before, when mega donors have a personal connection to a state, that can lead to more involvement in local politics. We certainly saw that on the left with hedge fund manager, billionaire uh, Donald Sussman, who donated uh, large sums to Democratic groups here in Maine. Right. And Leo um, also gave an interview to a conservative website here uh, defending the use of so-called dark money to advance right-of-center policies and legislation. And that's part of what makes this donation so interesting, Kevin. I think you know, it came from a nonprofit uh, known as the Concord Fund, which is literally the same organization as the Judicial Crisis Network. And JCN is the same outfit that spent millions of dollars influencing nominations to the Supreme Court. It's recently pivoted to different causes, including pushing voting restrictions at the state level. And last year, it's received nearly $29 million from Marble Freedom Trust, which is a nonprofit that Leo founded in 2020 as part of a $183 million windfall to an array of conservative groups. Yeah. And so this $50,000 is not a massive sum, especially when you're talking about dollar figures like you know, 28 29 million dollars but this is the first publicly disclosed donation that we've seen here in Maine uh, from the Concord fund and I guess the big question is is this the first of many or was this a one-off thing uh, I'm sure that the Maine Republican Party and conservative or and conservative organizations in the state would love you know absolutely love to cultivate an ongoing relationship with Mr Leo if they could yeah and there's definitely a lot more questions to be answered here Kevin I think The other important point to bring up is that if these nonprofits connected to Leo increase their presence here, 
We may not see it in publicly disclosed donations like this. In fact, this could be an anomaly because politically driven nonprofits don't always pass money to political action committees because it has to be disclosed. I mean, that's how we found this one. But usually they tend to operate more opaquely, hence the name dark money. Um, they can hide donors and their spending activity is reported annually. So it's really hard to track their influencing efforts in real time. So what we could be looking at here is a deepening of dark money influencing campaigns in Maine politics. And we've already had quite a bit of it. Right. As you suggested, this wouldn't be a new thing. You know, some of the big groups on the left have been funneling dark money into Maine for some time, but this could be an expansion on the right of the same, on the right side of the aisle. All right. Well, let's close out this uh, Pulse segment with a look ahead to next week and the possibility of a people's veto campaign to overturn Governor Janet Mills's abortion expansion law. What's the latest, Kevin? So that abortion bill, LD 1619, was hands down the most contentious issue that we saw in Augusta this year. There were huge crowds of opponents at the state house for weeks on end, and they argued that this expansion would allow or could allow abortions right up to the point of birth. Supporters say no, it basically puts those decisions into the hands of the medical professionals where it should be, as opposed to politicians. But the question now is whether the opponents will try to take their campaign to main voters through a people's veto ballot initiative. They have until Wednesday to get an application into the Secretary of State's office to start that process. And then after that, they would have just 80 days to collect nearly 68,000 signatures to get this on the ballot. And that is a huge task in less than three months. I, I spoke this week with Mike McClellan of the Christian Civic League of Maine, as well as Representative Laurel Libby, who's an Auburn Republican whose group Speak Up for Life helped rally uh, opponents at the state house. They didn't want to characterize the likelihood of a of a people's veto campaign, but they both said that those intense discussions are happening this week. And I certainly wouldn't be surprised if, if it did happen because opponents feel like even though the majority of Maine residents support abortion rights, they say this bill goes too far and they think the majority of Mainers might be in support of that view as well. Um, and then lastly, just the one obvious question here is the large amount of is can they compete with the pro-abortion side? There would be a large amount of money that would be available to defend this bill from groups like Planned Parenthood. And they would either have to match it or find a way to get their messaging out around that. Okay, that's Kevin Miller. I'm Steve Missler, and that's Maine's Political Pulse. A reminder that you can subscribe to The Pulse wherever you get your podcasts. You can also sign up for our newsletter, and we encourage you to do that if you want to go a bit deeper than we do here. Sign up for both at mainepublic.org slash pulse. We'll talk to you again soon on Maine's Political Pulse. <laughs>